So today we're going to do some advanced leadership training. And it's not advanced, so don't freak out. It's not like it's super technical. And a lot of it's kind of common sense. But it is fairly advanced leadership training. It comes primarily from God's Word. But a lot of the details are filled in from a lot of cutting-edge leadership books that I think have a lot to offer. As we get into this, you can turn to 1 Samuel 14. You probably already know the story that's going to be our foundational text, our anchor text for what we talk about. This is not comprehensive. You could have picked 100 million different things to share on this morning. I really had to focus on five that I think will really benefit us as we grow as leaders. The Maxwell diagram that we shared at the GCL conference is wonderful. If your natural potential, I'm going to put over here, is uh, your natural potential. Let's say on a scale of 1 to 10, this is your personal potential. Let's say you're a top-notch person. So you're up to like an 8 in your personal potential. And over on this y-axis, we have leadership potential. If you put all of your time into your personal growth, which it's good to grow personally, but you haven't cultivated much leadership potential, let's say your life effectiveness is, let's say you're at a 9 right now. I don't think any of us will ever get to that 10 while we're on this planet. But let's say you're at a 9, you're only, what, 9% as effective as you could be for Christ. Now, if you just go up one notch, just from a 1 to a 2 in leadership. That's not very much. That's a baby step in leadership. You've just doubled your life potential. Does that make sense? Because you can impact so many more people than just your own personal self. In other words, Russ is really good at diagrams. Maybe he's a 9 at diagrams. Okay? That's great. But until Russ actually becomes a stronger leader and passes those skills on to others, he's very minimally effective. But as he grows as a leader, he begins to impact more people with where he's strong, and he drastically multiplies his own impact for Christ. Does that make sense? So it's critical that we focus attention here. In fact, you're going to get more bang for your buck focusing on leadership growth than only exclusively personal growth. But do not neglect the personal growth, like Aaron reminded us this morning. Are you guys tracking with me? So you don't have to naturally be a leader to grow as a leader. And you don't have to think of yourself as a leader to say, I need to grow in the area of leadership. All of us in the ministry should be growing as leaders. Because you all are leaders in different ways, whether that is um, your main gift or your last gift. You're functioning in those ways, okay? So that's kind of where we're going today. I wanted to lay the foundation for why this is so important. And these things are all proven ways of growing as a leader. So if you get this, your ministry will be more effective. That's what I'm saying. If you pay attention to these five critical leadership traits, you will be more effective in ministry. Again, we could have done 20 this morning or many more. Here are just five that I think this passage illustrates that I think are vitally important in your ministry. So let's read it together. 1 Samuel 14. 1 through 14. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. 
He was the son of Ichabod's brother Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Senna. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other to the south toward Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, Come then, we will cross over toward the men and let them see us. If they say to us, Wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. So here are some leadership characteristics that come out of this passage. There are many more that are in this passage. It's such a great passage, right? But the first one I want to mention is that a leader must be creative. Okay? A leader must be creative. Jonathan's example in this passage is obviously creative and unparalleled in military history. He's confronting a Philistine outpost. You usually don't do that that way, right? He's doing it from below them ge geographically. You usually don't do it that way. He's doing it single file up a cliff. <laughs> Not necessarily the first way you'd attack an outpost. And he's doing it outnumbered 10 to 1. None of that is status quo protocol. None of that's the way things normally go. He's being very creative in his approach. And he's not just doing it willy-nilly. He's really trusting God with this. But it's incredibly creative. One of my favorite examples of creativity, specifically military creativity, is the Navajo Code Talkers of World War II, right? When the Germans had their Enigma system and we cracked it and we could understand them, we had our own system based on the Navajo Code Talkers and they never broke it. What a creative way to win a war, right? I think the last Navajo code talker just died a couple weeks ago, I heard. Uh, kind of sad. But a great illustration of creativity. Now, in your ministries, it's critical that you become more creative because times are changing. Everything is changing. Five years ago, gay marriage was a non-issue. And most people, including the liberal president that we have now, were stating that they were against it. Now it's everywhere, and if you say you're against it, you're the bigot. You're the homophobe. You're the crazy person. You have to deal with this new culture, this new climate, and you'd better be creative. Everything is changing, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but it requires that we be creative. And as a leader, if you're going to lead a team, you have to be creative in your approach to your campus and your approach to your ministry. If you're not creative, you're going to miss all sorts of opportunities. I love Angie's creativity. She's always coming up with crazy ideas. Leah really does that well on our campus. And if you're not creative, you're going to miss opportunities that you would if you were 
creative. Okay, so no matter your disposition, you can become more creative and more visionary and more willing to lead people towards a vision far greater than they would go themselves. So how do you become more creative? We're going to list a few key ways to become more creative. And I ask you as a leader, do these things and you'll become more creative. So to become more creative, number one, pray and ask God to make you more creative. That's simple, right? In James 1.5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Ask for creative wisdom. Ask God to give you his creative ideas for your campus. Russ always talks about finding the keys to your campus. This is what we're talking about. You have to develop creativity, and it starts with asking God for us. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21 says that he's able to do greater things than we can imagine or ask according to his power that is at work within us. Okay, so here's another part of prayer that I want you to do. As you pray, ask God for big things. Because I think your physical life will conform to your prayer life. If you're uncreative in your prayers, you'll likely be uncreative in your life. Start asking God for great things and let him develop a sense of creativity in you as you trust him to do more than your own baseline is possible of doing, can do, right? I think it's Batterson that says prayer is the difference between your best and God's best, right? So develop a prayer life that grows your creativity, starting by asking God to make you more creative, but also asking God for great things and becoming creative as you Imagine the potential all around you. Okay, second, to become more creative, be an enthusiastic learner. All of you should be reading, and you should be reading a lot. And there's never been a time in history where it was easier to read. My first several years on staff, I think I read one book, maybe two books, because I was always so busy doing things, okay? A lot of times as leaders, if you're doing things, and you're, like Kyle said, you're, there's, there are no margins in life, especially when you get to have families. You'll see this is often the case. It could be hard to sit down and read a book. Well, you know what? On your phone, you can get an Audible app, and you can listen to books. On a Kindle, you can read books by using their text-to-speech function. I do this almost every day. I drive to campus, get in the car, click it on, plug it in, listen to a book to campus. And usually, it's about a chapter there and a chapter back. Right? So every day, it's a couple chapters. I pretty much did my entire program at Liberty in a year and a half, which is really short for that program, doing that. Like, seriously. Um, I, I think I actually physically read three books the entire time. You can get a lot of reading done using the resources that our day and age have provided for you. I want to tell you a great example, though. 150 years ago, Spurgeon... He did a lot, he wrote a lot, he preached a lot, he led a huge church, and in spite of being very busy, he read a book a day. Can you believe that? He read a book a day. Now, 150 years ago, there was no Kindle, there were no Christian bookstores, so he obviously had to be planning out and making sure he had those books ahead of time. He was being very strategic about his personal growth. As you start reading... Your creativity will blossom. Am I right, Laura, who reads all the time? Angie, you're always telling me 97 books I need to read. You're right. 
but your creativity will grow as you start to read and hear ideas. You don't know what you don't know, right? But if you start reading other people, you'll start to find out some things. So as a staff person, start reading. One suggestion would be uh, Futurecast, if you want to develop some creativity, where Barna actually uses statistics to paint a picture of what the world will look like 10 to 20 years from now. So if you want to know what kind of problems you're going to be facing in ministry 10 to 20 years from now, he's not a prophet, but I think everything in that book is pretty right on the money. But you can read to become more creative. You could also investigate. The obstacles around you are really opportunities. Say that with me. Obstacles are opportunities. Obstacles are opportunities. So look at your obstacles and investigate solutions others have found. That might be ministries today. That might be ministries in the past. But the best place to investigate would be God's word. We're not the first people to deal with these things. Ecclesiastes 1.9 says that there's nothing new under the sun. Right? So investigate and grow your creativity. Bottom line, never stop learning. Hendricks said that if you stop learning today, you'll stop teaching tomorrow. So make it your ambition to never stop learning. As soon as we got done with Liberty, I started praying about the next step. I just took that leap this summer, begin in about six weeks. I'm excited for that. But I can assure you, I'm already thinking now of the steps for after that step. That'll be about three years ago, or three years from now, that'll be finished. And I'm already strategically trying to think through what I will be doing after that. I don't want to stop learning, and none of us should. We, I feel desperately inadequate for the ministry that God has called me to. You? And I don't want to just leave well enough alone. I really want to do all that I can to be that unleashed servant for God. So keep learning. Okay, to be more creative, get out of your bubble. Expose yourself to new people, methods, ideas, blogs, videos, ministries, etc. Get out of your bubble. For Aaron and I, liberty was the most humbling experience of our lives, I think, right? It was really getting out of our bubble, and it was shocking to both of us. The foundational issues that we as a ministry will not give up are great, and they make this, in my opinion, the greatest ministry to be on staff with on the planet. But we don't know everything either. So get out of your bubble and find some nuances that we're missing or some ideas that just haven't hit us because we're not everyone, right? Spend time with creative people. Develop friendships with people that are more creative than you. Keep being mentored by people. And not just one. Maybe you'll find somebody that is very creative in ministry that could encourage you or even mentor you in some of those issues. Read biographies of innovators and leaders. Why not, right? I, I, I don't think Henry Ford was the best leader. A lot of people note a lot of his leadership inadequacies. But some of his quotes about leadership are unbelievable. Right? And I love reading those. Okay. To become more creative, cultivate a lifestyle of trying new things. Get that pump going, right? So you could try new sports, new hobbies, new languages, new foods, new arts, new places, etc. Learn and grow your interests. It'll make you more creative and it'll give you more points of common ground with people that you're trying to reach for Christ. I'm trying to learn guitar right now. This is the biggest difficulty I've ever faced. I am not wired this way. I am very analytical side of things. 
guitar is like, I don't even know how to explain it. I just, I'm like sitting there, it's like, I, it just is not there. <laughs> well, I have some creative left side, yeah, but the guitar is just not there. Well, okay, but it's difficult. It's very <laughs> difficult for me. So anyway, um, but try some new things. Learn some new things. Develop your creativity in those ways. All right, finally, the last way to become more creative, value your team's ideas and contributions. And I don't just mean hear your team's ideas and contributions. I mean value them. It's been said correctly that no one knows as much as everyone in the room, right? <laughs> So don't think you know as much as everyone in the room, even if you're the smartest, even though that'd be pretty proud to think that, person in the room, right? In our team, I love sitting down, and in my mind, I go boom, boom, boom. I, I love strategy, and I'm very strategic, and I got the strategy all planned, and then Aaron says, what about this? And I go, uh, didn't even think of that, <laughs> but it's a pretty big issue. And then Leah says, we could do this. Uh, I didn't even think about that. That's the best idea I've ever heard. <laughs> but if, if I don't value the team, my, my own lack of creativity becomes my lid. Does that make sense? So really value your team's contributions. And don't see them as competing with yours. Recognize that God's not going to give you everything. He's going to give the body everything. right? And you need to rely on each other. If you value your team's ideas and contributions, you'll become more creative. Brainstorm with your team. Be willing to try new ideas. One of my favorite examples of this is the Frappuccino. You guys know the Frappuccino, right, at Starbucks? It's made hundreds of millions of dollars for Starbucks as a corporation. Do you know how they came up with this idea? A barista at, their local, at a local coffee shop didn't like hot coffee, so she'd bring her blender to work, her own personal blender, and blend up iced coffee drinks to drink. And customers started noticing it and asking if she'd do the same for them, and she'd do it for them, and, and it became kind of a big deal in her little city. And corporate management and leadership didn't just say, ah, quit bringing your blender to work, okay? You're making a mess, and you're getting people off track from what we're trying to do as a company. They said, hey, if they like it, let's, let's do it. Let's give it a shot. They've made hundreds of millions of dollars now off that idea. But they didn't shoot down the idea of their team. You shouldn't either. So grow your creativity by praying and asking God to make you more creative, by being an enthusiastic learner, by getting out of your bubble, by cultivating a lifestyle of trying new things, and by valuing your team's ideas and contributions. Okay, here's an important issue of leadership that we see very clearly in this passage. A leader risks for God. A leader risks for God. Jonathan redefines risk in this passage, trusting God to do something great in spite of almost unthinkable odds. Again, he's attacking a high position and he's outnumbered 10 to 1. There's all sorts of risk going on here. But he's banking on God to come through. As a leader, no one will follow you into the ordinary. Okay? If you say, hey, I'm going to accomplish the ordinary, come follow me, people are going to laugh. So as a leader, you have to constantly be taking new risks. That, by definition, is not the ordinary. Your capacity for leadership is directly proportional to your capacity to trust God and take risks that are scary. Think of the greatest leaders that you know that you respect most, that have impacted your life most. 
and I'd venture to say they probably demonstrate a lifestyle of risk-taking for God. Right? So cultivate that risk yourself. Yourself. Xerxes, one of the greatest warriors in history, said only by great risks can great results be achieved. And he was right. So we have to cultivate this risk-taking perspective on life and ministry. So I just want to briefly, and we don't have a lot of time, so we can't do a whole lot on this. I want to encourage you that to be a leader, you have to take risks. So I'd like you to think of three risks that you need to take next year. Okay? Relate it back to your campus ministries or whatever you're going to be dealing with, maybe in your family, maybe somewhere else, but three risks that are risky. I'm not saying, like, I'm going to wear pink shoes for the first time. Okay? That's not a risk I'm going to take. But think of some risks that are actually going to present you with an opportunity to fail, where God actually has to come through. Maybe a Jonathan type of risk. And don't maybe do it stupidly. So I should be careful in how much time I give you here. You might need to think about this for a little while. So jot down three things that come to mind, but evaluate them. Pray about them. Ask God if these are risks he wants you to take. Because you shouldn't just take risk for the, side of, for the sake of risk. But you should develop a risk-taking attitude as you follow your Savior into what he's called you to. So I'm imagining if you're walking in the Spirit, you know some things he's calling you to do. So write some of those down. If you need more time, that's fine. Just take it back. And I want to ask you to really cultivate that risk-taking attitude in ministry. Are you saying risk could also be called big-time goals? Uh, they would involve big-time goals, involve for sure. Yeah. They would sure involve that. And a goal is a good way to make sure a risk happens. But take a risk. Yeah. It could just be talking to somebody. Who knows? I don't know what your risks are. But get some on paper. Okay, a leader must be adaptable, leading in a changing world. This is critical. Jonathan was willing to adapt as opportunities and obstacles presented themselves in the midst, in the midst of a dynamic situation. In verse 1 and 2, we read that his father and 600 soldiers were fighting not to lose, while Jonathan and one guy were fighting to win. They were adapting to the dynamics of the battlefield, and they were doing it in a way where they were leading change. They weren't passively sitting under the tree, hoping things would turn around. They were taking the initiative, leading change. Now, Austin and Laura said that one of the qualities of a leader is that they're a change agent. That's been one of the definitions of a leader in history. The problem is, change is the number one thing that causes conflict. So a good leader is always having to deal with conflict. If you're creating change, you're going to be creating conflict. So just a side note, you should get familiar with dealing with conflict as a leader. Okay? And don't brush that off. Deal with it immediately before it becomes a big monster. But also, you need to lead change with some wisdom. Kyle, in your ministry, have you found that challenging students to something new usually results in... Lots of admiration and respect and people talking well of you across the campus? Or does it sometimes go the other way? Sometimes the first one happens. <laughs> Don't you wish it happened all the time? Don't you wish every time you challenge the students with some change to better get to the vision, you were met with respect? You can be. Okay, I'm going to read to you the 
eight keys to leading change from the book Leading Change, which comes from a 30-year Harvard study about how to initiate change in a way that draws people in rather than putting up defenses. You can write these down here, and they all make all sorts of sense. As a leader, I hope that you'll write these down, and when you and your staff team say, we need to a, we need a go towards some change, I pray that you'd use these eight steps. Number one, establish a sense of urgency. People don't want to change if they don't feel like there needs to be a change. So establish a sense of urgency. You could do this by sharing the vision. Okay, when you show a video like you did last night about sex trafficking, what does that do? That describes the urgency of doing something about this problem. Once I have the urgency inside me, then I'm going to be a lot more on the same page with you about changing the status quo to make a difference. But if you just come to me and say, we're going to do da 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 wait a minute, I don't even know why we're doing this. Like, it's just more on my schedule. I don't have the time already. Does that make sense? So as you intend to initiate change, establish a sense of urgency. Do not skip that step. Make sure that everybody, to the best of your ability, understands the urgency and the need for the change. Next, create a guiding coalition. That's kind of a technical term. But what you want to do is you want to get input and buy-in. And it might be smart to even be willing to compromise on some of your issues to give buy-in. In other words, you're pretty firm that it needs to be this way, but a student is saying, I really want to do it this way. Maybe give that to the student if it's not that big of a critical issue to help them buy into the change. Does that make sense? So as you create a guiding coalition, you're creating a group of leaders. This might be your servant team. This might be other students that sense the urgency and they're willing to sacrifice to make this happen. And when you have that group on board with you, they're really going to drive things well. And if they're not on board with you, things aren't going to go well. Isn't it true that most of those big, hairy, nasty conflicts start with the servant team? That's why. If you want the change, you have to get that guiding coalition on board with you. And don't take a step till they're there. Does that make sense? Okay, next, develop a vision and strategy. You're not calling them just to go who knows where for whatever reason. You need to create a very clear vision and strategy. Once you've developed that very clear vision and strategy, you need to communicate that vision very clearly. Because if you're not communicating it, it just becomes more things on my schedule. But as you communicate it, it keeps the urgency high so people are willing to do whatever it takes to make it happen. Okay, this is critical. Empower broad-based action. Empower broad-based action. This means you cut people loose to serve with their gifts and strengths. You do not micromanage them. The second you start looking over shoulders, micromanaging, you're toast. And the whole change is two. Everywhere you're going is two. You get gossip, slander, and we all know how fun that is. Okay, next, generate short-term wins. So you have a vision where you're going, but it's probably pretty big. And you're not going to get there by just making that your only goal. So in, other, in order to keep the momentum up when it's difficult, create lots of short-term wins for your team. In other words, set really small goals. Not too small, but set small enough goals that they're virtually guaranteed to meet them. 
and then rejoice when they meet them. At the end of the semester last year, we set a goal of 75 spiritual conversations as a team this week. And we had 83, okay? That's not like the most incredible statistic in the world, but everybody was really excited about it. Everybody was really, really, really happy that we hit that goal. That was a short-term win. It created momentum. It created excitement about the vision. It kept us going as a team versus, I don't want to do this. It's hard. Does that make sense? So generate those short-term wins. I would encourage you this next semester, we're going to try it, setting goals on a weekly basis for your staff team maybe, for your servant team maybe. You're just keeping them going in a direction rather than hoping people will naturally <laughs> drift there. Okay. Once you have those short-term wins, consolidate gains and produce more change. Okay, do you, do you know where I'm going with this? You have momentum coming off of that goal, so don't just drop it. Keep going to the next one. So if we'd been early in the semester, I could have consolidated our gains by saying, team, we killed it. We did 83, not 75. What's stopping us from 100 next week, right? So you're consolidating your gains and you're driving more towards the goal. Does that make sense? Can you, can you repeat that? Yeah. So consolidate gains and produce more change. That's the technical term straight from leading change by Cotter. But the point is, don't just have your short-term win and then it's in the history books. Use that momentum. Go somewhere with that momentum. Make the most of that momentum. Maybe set a new goal. Well, if we had 83 spiritual conversations, how about we bring 50 people next week to a point of decision? We could try that, right? Does that make sense? So you're capitalizing on the short-term wins to drive the team forward. Okay, finally, that also speaks a lot to your credibility. If you have those short-term wins, as a leader, you become more credible in people's minds. So Maxwell actually says that your credibility is like a bank account. Whenever you have a win, there's a deposit into the bank account. Whenever you have a loss in ministry, there's a... There's um, a withdrawal from your bank account. So if you say, students, let's do this, and nothing happens, and then students, let's do this, and nothing happens, which students are going with you the next time? None. You just missed it two times. So you have to put some, some credibility in the credibility account to get students to follow you the next time. Does that make sense? Here's an example. For years, we did spring break projects where? In exciting Durango, right? Students, we're going to do it. It's, it's going to be different than last year's because last year we just uh, worked at the ranch and four of you came. So this year we're going to go to the lodge and snowboard and share our faith on lifts. And guess what? Zero come. Okay? And then this year, finally at our, at our staff meeting, we said we can never again do a spring break project in Durango. Because we created what's called a leadership black hole. Our own decisions undermined our own decisions. Our own plans undermined our own plans. Students didn't want to follow us because last time there was nothing to follow. Does that make sense? So what did we do this year? We went all out. We're going to L.A. It's going to be crazy. We're going to do X, Y, and Z. And you know what? It was a great spring break trip. That was some credibility into the credibility account. Every one of those students said, next spring break, whatever you're doing, we're there. See, they're willing to follow because they saw something. That's what I'm saying. You want to capitalize on that credibility from a short-term win. Okay, this is the last way to drive change in a changing atmosphere. Gosh, and i got to hurry this up, guys. I'm sorry. But you need to anchor your new approaches in the culture. So let's say we're setting goals each week about 
evangelism and discipleship, and we're meeting those goals. Well, we need to take those things and anchor them in our culture. So we had 83 spiritual conversations last week. Last week's not the end. We are going to anchor that in our culture as a ministry. Let's, let's be striving for this every week. We'll set new goals, but why not keep trying to, to share our faith as often as possible? So you're capitalizing on those short-term wins to change the entire culture of your team so that your team embraces the vision that you're going towards. Did that all kind of make sense? And you have it written down now. I can't remember it all either, but you have it written down. So I hope you can refer back to it. Brandon? In other words, it's kind of like you're setting a new normal. That's exactly it. So you're, you're setting a new normal. You're helping the guy that played video games all through high school that never wanted to do anything and then came to school thinking he was just going to maybe pass so he could get a decent job. Now his, his baseline is, I'm an evangelist. That's a whole lot of change between those two. But you're helping them anchor that using this process. Does that make sense? And if you use this process, it's going to be a lot better. Now, man, I'm getting short, but I want to read three things or four steps that you will go through as you pitch change. And this is where all these eight steps will be so critical. So when you pitch a new vision, this always happens. And this is actually from Managing at the Speed of Change, a different book on leading change. But he says, always, when you initiate change, you're going to have four steps in the process. One is, you're going to have uninformed optimism. I'm starting a blog, Mission of Women. It's going to be great. So when you came up with the idea, everybody thinks this is like the most awesome thing ever, right? There's uninformed optimism at first. That always leads to informed pessimism. I have to have how many words to you, how often, how soon, by what dates, Laura? Right? There's some informed pessimism. I have to sacrifice some. I have to contribute. I have to do some things that aren't that comfortable. People can leave at the informed pessimism stage, or you as a leader, using those eight steps can help bring them through that. As you bring them through that, hopefully you arrive at hopeful realism. People look at the real situation and they say, this just might work. This just might work. And then, as they begin to buy into it, that can lead, hopefully, as you lead well through change, to informed optimism. God is using this. This is awesome. And I am so glad I'm a part of this. Does that make sense? So as you lead your team through those four critical stages, use these eight steps because they will work. And if you don't, you'll have trouble. All right, we have to go real quick because I have like six minutes. A leader must be zoned in on the vision. Jonathan was zoned in on one thing, the victory he knew God had for him. His vision and hope was that the Lord would work in their behalf, winning the battle for them, whatever the odds. You can read about that in verse 6. That was his vision. A leader zones in on the vision. So Paul did this personally. We all know in 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27, how he beat himself into submission so that he wouldn't be disqualified for the prize, right? This is typically considered one of the most important leadership characteristics, and we can all grow in vision and casting vision for students and others that we lead. Again, you can't lead people where you can't see. You have to be able to inspire them to go there, okay? Remember what Jonathan's armor bearer told Jonathan? He said, go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. He didn't just say, I have to, because I'm your servant. 
Jonathan had so cast the vision for this guy that the guy was emotionally there, he was mentally there, he was all in following Jonathan. Because Jonathan had correctly given him a vision of what God could do if they trusted him. As leaders, we have to do the same. So I raised it, but what's our vision statement again as a ministry? Servants of the Okay, hopefully that's a good picture of where we're going. We're not there yet, but we'll go there, okay? And we need to articulate our vision for campus as well. But if we can't articulate that vision well, we're going to suffer. So we don't just need to have it. We need to communicate it often. In fact, a lot of these leadership books will say that you should devote five to ten minutes of every talk you do to the issue of vision. So I don't say that you mean, I don't mean that you take every talk and go, now let's talk about the vision. I'm saying whatever talk you happen to be doing, you should relate it back to the vision. Okay, I'm talking about integrity. Somewhere in that talk, I'd better say, if I don't have integrity, I'm not going to be the servant that's unleashed to reach the world for Jesus. Right? So I'm relating back to the vision, no matter what I'm talking about, so that the team always has it in front of them. They always know where we're going. They're not just sitting there thinking, why am I spending more time in the servant team meeting when I could be doing homework? Right? They're seeing where we're going as a ministry. Okay, now this is critical. You have to get this. And I'm glad to end on this one. Okay. As a leader, you must be yourself. Jonathan didn't try to emulate his father or his best friend David. He simply led the way God designed him to lead. He was himself. You guys are not Russ, or Kyle, or Austin, or me, or Scott, or Mark, or Stephanie. That's great. You're you because God wanted you to be you, so be yourself and flourish as yourself. The whole passage describes Jonathan's very unique approach, especially verse 13. Jonathan climbed up. He's ahead of the armor bearer, leading by example, using his hands and feet to get into this battle position. Have you ever heard anything like that before? Never, right? He was being himself in a very unique way. Leaders have to be themselves. So you can be yourself by growing personally, be the best you can be in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why we're starting these 360s as a ministry. Here's something that you should, that you should remember. In the leadership challenge, which is probably, by most people's estimations, the premier leadership book in existence... It's from another 30-plus year Harvard study. In the leadership challenge, they talk about five critical aspects of leadership. Number one, model the way. You don't have to write these down if you don't want to. I'm just kind of summarizing the book for you. Number one, model the way, so lead by example. Number two, inspire a shared vision. So have that vision, communicate it, but also inspire people to get there. So it's not just intellectual. It has to speak to their heart. Number three, challenge the process. Things have to change, so challenge the process. Number four, enable others to act. Really cut people loose, really give them real power, and don't micromanage them. And number five, encourage the heart. We'll talk a little bit about that in just about one minute from now. But the bottom line is that in the leadership challenge, they say out of thousands of surveys over 30 years of leaders, do you know what the number one weakness across the board of leaders is? The biggest weakness of leaders is receiving feedback about their performance. Isn't that interesting? Leaders 
hate like the plague to hear that they failed at something. And they often blame others or say people are against me or don't like me or whatever. That's a horrible response, but it's the number one response of leaders, right? They say, interestingly, feedback about your performance is the number one way that you can grow. So we have the number one way that you can grow being most leaders' number one weakness. Isn't that horrible? Don't you want to grow? So we have to embrace this feedback thing, getting feedback so that we can personally grow. I shared Maxwell's diagram, keep growing in leadership, keep reading leadership books, develop in all these areas. And here's what's key, guys. Lead with the fruit of the Spirit, and you have to get this. You have to lead with the fruit of the Spirit. Your smile, kindness, laughter, attitude, energy, empathy, and sympathy are some of the most important leadership tools you have. If you do not smile very often, people will not follow you because you're coming across to them as not caring. This is, um, I would encourage you to read, if you want to read all about this, you could read Primal Leadership. You could do their 360 about how to grow in that area. But the bottom line is the fruit of the Spirit doesn't just need to be cultivated in our lives, but it has to come out to people. It has to come out in your smile, in your voice, in your laughter. Good leaders have to laugh, right? They have to be good at, at coming across as not just all strategy, but real person. The number one thing you can do for people, this is the number one thing from studies, it increases your, your team members' productivity more than anything else. If you want to give somebody a way to win, if you want to empower a student to actually be all they can be, to be that servant unleashed, the number one thing survey after survey shows that you should do for that person is compliment them. People that say their bosses often compliment them do 30% better across the board than people who say their bosses don't often compliment them. I'm not saying to be fake or to make stuff up, but what you should do is catch people doing good and you should compliment them immediately, accurately, specifically, and if possible, publicly. And a lot of times we think, oh, that might make them proud. That's a ridiculous excuse, right? Anything could make you proud. Trust God in people's lives to help them not become proud. But as a leader, you'd better let them know you're their biggest supporter. And when you do that, you cut them loose and you don't micromanage them. Teddy Roosevelt put it this way. The best executive is someone who has sense enough to pick good men to do what he wants done and self-restraint enough to keep from meddling with them while they do it. Did you catch that? The best executive is someone who has sense enough to pick good men to do what needs to be done and self-restraint enough to keep from meddling with them while they do it. So as a leader, be creative, risk-taking, adaptable, zoned in on the vision, and yourself. You guys got all that? I hope those will help you in ministry. And I didn't want to start with this, but in case you didn't catch it yet, that's an acronym. Crazy. All right, so if you need help remembering that, it's the Crazy Leadership Acronym. I can't get through a talk without at least one, right? So 1 Timothy 4.15 says, Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. The Holy Spirit in you has what it takes. But you also need to be diligent working with him. So be a crazy leader. 
As you leave this talk, write down on paper exactly how you want to take a step in some of these areas, and you will become the leader God wants you to be. Jesus, I thank you so much that you really are the best example of a leader and that you empower us to follow that great example with your spirit. I pray that you'd help us grow in all these areas. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.